my job now is, is to focus on the needs of people who are older with a visual impairment. They have come to, you know, the later years of their lives, their 60s, 70s, 80s. They've lived their lives with 20-20 vision, and they don't know what's possible. And you and I both know that people who are blind and visually impaired can do anything they want to do with the right skills, the right tools, and, and the right training. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. Neva Fairchild was invited to TSBVI's Career Cafe to chat with students about employment for those who are blind. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, her in-person appearance that would have happened the day we recorded this episode was put on hold. But lucky for us, Neva agreed to share her story with a Sense of Texas listeners. My name is Neva Fairchild. I stumbled upon rehabilitation when I went back to uh, community college to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, finished my bachelor's and master's in rehabilitation and went to work in the field of blindness rehabilitation um, at about age 35, which is a little later than most women enter their profession. So I've kind of, uh, I kind of entered the workforce later than most and um, have spent the last almost 30 years, next, next January will be 30 years <laughs> in that field. So it sounds like that you didn't you didn't really grow up thinking that you were going to work in the blindness field, but you just sort of landed there over time. Really, I didn't know what the blindness field was. Um, yeah. I I felt very fortunate that my parents. I, I was born in 1956, so I was in elementary school. You know, long before IDEA. And my parents fought very hard in every new school we went to. And in my 12 years of education, there were 14 different schools. Mm. And uh, um, some of them were in the same district, but it was a lot of moving around. And for a visually impaired kid, um, every new school we went to, they wanted to send me to the school for the blind. Mm -hmm. And... um, whether they were well-informed or not, my parents fought against that tooth and nail and kept me in public schools with no accommodations. So um, it was wow. it was good and it was bad, okay? So I got a, I, I feel like I got a very well-rounded education. I got to participate in a lot of things that uh, probably in those days, the schools for the blind around the country did not have. Um, like I marched in band when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and um, you know I I uh, got to participate in in art classes and visual arts and and performing arts and that kind of thing. Um, but I got no blindness skills. Okay, mm-hmm. I I didn't learn to read Braille till I was in my forties. Wow. I didn't learn to type until I was in my thirties. And I learned that when my sister and I sat down at a kitchen table with a brother typewriter and a mm-hmm. touch typing book, we checked out of the library because I was about to write to have to write a master's thesis, and I just 
put my foot down and said, I am not writing this on a legal pad with a black felt tip pen. I'm just not doing it that way. Yeah. And otherwise I, you know, and, and now when I look back at that, Emily, it's like touch typing, you know, knowing the keyboard and, and knowing Braille are two of the three foundational skills that give me the ability to be independent as a, as a blind adult. And, you know, I got them very late in life. Mm -hmm. So uh, my my parents, however, you know, however they came to that conclusion, at the time I was, you know, entering college and everything, I thought it was the smartest thing they had ever done. Looking back on it, I think there could have been a compromise and it might have been better for me in the long run to have had those blindness skills earlier rather than later. Mm. But, you know, you can't go back and change that. But I wanted to offer kids who are blind or visually impaired, you know, uh, that that sense of possibilities that my parents gave me that, you know, I could do anything I wanted to do. And they expected me to do everything that every other kid on earth was doing. And I wanted to share that. And, uh, Uh, Now, after, you know, meeting a lot of kids over the 30 years of my career who didn't have that in their lives, for whatever reason, um, then I realized how important that was to my eventual success, um, not taking no for an answer, you know. So what is your, um, tell us about your current job and what you're doing these days. Well, I work for the American Foundation for the Blind, which is a national nonprofit organization created by Helen Keller and other notables of the time almost 100 years ago. We'll celebrate our 100th birthday in 2021. And uh, I was hired about 12 years ago to work at the Center on Vision Loss in Dallas at Esther's Place, which is a dem- was a demonstration model apartment. Um, where we had, you know, products in uh, in a home-like setting, and we did demonstration tours and um, lots of seminars and workshops to help people learn to live with vision loss and and to get, you know, good information. So originally started to focus only on older people with vision loss, but it really kind of morphed into if you had if you had a question about vision loss or were looking for resources, you know, we would serve anybody. That was closed um, two years ago because American Foundation for the Blind took a uh, real hard look at its strategic goals um, when our new CEO, Kirk Adams, came on board. And um, we decided that even though for, you know, 96 or 97 of our years, we had helped people negotiate the system of services, whether it was a child, a working age adult, or a a senior citizen, Um, you know, you could come to ASB and and find out what you needed to know uh, about negotiating this very difficult and confusing and challenging system in the United States. And we, we changed our direction to uh, away from helping individuals negotiate that to changing the system itself to create a world of no limits. That's one of our slogans that we're working to create a world of no limits because we believe that people who are blind or visually impaired should have the same opportunities as everybody. If you need transportation and you can't drive, you should have the opportunity 
to um, have reliable, affordable, good transportation. Same way with an education. You should have access to an educational system that meets your individual needs without having to negotiate or fight or, or you know, figure out this confusing process. And so we're working on research um, to find out what those issues are and have evidence-based research on what the best solutions are, as well as we're working on policy changes. And so my job now as National Aging and Vision Loss Specialist is to focus on the needs of people who are older with a visual impairment, whether they um, had that visual impairment all their lives, or they have come to, you know, the later years of their lives, their 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're experiencing vision loss. That's the people that really have a lot of need right now because they've lived their lives with 20-20 vision, and they don't know what's possible. They don't know what they can do with limited or no vision. They, a lot of them think that, you know, life is over for them. They can't do the things they need and want to do. And you and I both know that people who are blind and visually impaired can do anything they want to do with the right skills, the right tools, and, and the right training. And so we're working on, on uh, changing policies so those people can get that information. There's a very uh, uh, limited system in the United States of services for people who are older. It's called OIB, Older Individuals Who Are Blind, uh, and it's it's basically independent living services. And uh, right now, AFB's uh, statistics show that about 2 to 3% of the people who need those services get them. Wow. So that means the other 98, 97 or 98% of, of older people who have vision loss are sitting at home and, and don't know. They don't know about talking books. They don't know about a long white cane and using O&M skills to, to get around safely. They don't know about using, you know, transportation and, and going out and, and being independent to get to the grocery store, get to the doctor. They just don't know that's possible. And so we're trying to we're trying to figure out how to change that. And you know, part of it's funding, part of it's available professional personnel, uh, part of it's acceptance on the part of the person that mm-hmm. oh, now that I'm getting older and my vision is changing, um, I have to change. I have to do things differently. And some people are like, mm, no, I don't. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we want to we want to we want to find the magic key that unlocks that door to them so that, that they know they, they don't have to give up on life. I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, sitting and waiting for somebody to take care of me. If I lost my vision at my age now, because I'm in my 60s, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine just sitting around waiting for somebody to bring me a cup of coffee. I'm going to go make my own cup of coffee. Now, you mentioned that in the work you're doing, you're, you're um, focusing on research and policy changes. And, of course, we know that's what drives policy change is research, usually. Right. So what do you think is a crucial piece of data that we're may- maybe missing for aging adults who are blind that would help get better policies in place? Well, I'll tell you, it's a piece of information that we're missing almost on all ages of, of people who are blind or visually impaired in this country, well, I think we have the best handle on how many blind or visually impaired kids there are, okay? Yeah. Because of K through 12 special education and, 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 you know, but different states uh, do things differently. Uh, Texas, I think, has a pretty good system of counting kids, mm-hmm. but we don't have 
anything for counting working age adults or older adults. I don't think we have a good grasp of how many people out there are affected by vision loss. Um, There's not one uh, source of information. There are a couple of census-related surveys that, you know, add to what the census collects every 10 years. Mm -hmm. But even on the census, there isn't a question. Uh, You know, is there someone in your household you know, who is blind or visually impaired. And then the other side of that story is we don't use the same criteria for what does visually impaired mean. Yeah. Um, okay, people get blind, all right, mm-hmm. but very few, we know from, from past research, that uh, less than 15% of people who have a vision loss are totally blind. Right. So that leaves a whole big pot of people that don't know what they they don't know what to call themselves mm-hmm. and and neither do the surveys and neither does the research so you know getting yeah. one definition you know and and okay so let's make that definition legally blind yeah okay great well that's a big that's a big significant number but people who have 2100 vision and people who have 2070 vision and people who have 2040 vision also struggle mm-hmm. with um, their lives, you know, at, at, you have to have at least 20, 40 vision to drive without low vision aids and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you just take that away from people, they get, their vision gets to the point that they're not safe to drive. Uh, that's a huge impact on their lives. So, you know, I, I think you've commented, obviously transportation is probably one of the biggest impacts on people that lose their sight later in life. Um, what do you think are some of the other major impacts that cause them to sort of um, isolate themselves or not reach out for services? I think the first hurdle is the the perception that blind is bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's really bad to lose your vision. Oh, it's horrible, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how they feel. That's how they think. They're ashamed to tell their employer if they're still working. They just they don't tell their employer, "Hey, I'm having trouble seeing this. Something's going on with my vision. I need I need to figure out a new way to do this. I'm sure there's an accommodation out there that would help me do this aspect of my job, but I need your help." They don't do that. They leave. They yeah. they resign. They retire. Yeah. And then they start eating into whatever savings they might have. Let's hope they had savings. If not, they leave their hourly wage job and their paycheck-to-paycheck lifestyle, and they they really struggle economically until, you know, maybe they get on Social Security Disability Income, SSDI. Maybe they don't. Maybe they end up losing everything, and they go on SSI welfare, and so then they live on, you know, six, $700 a month. I don't know about you, but that doesn't go very far in this yeah. day and age. And, and they really are among the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, it's an, it's an economic impact. It's a social impact. Their, their friends don't understand why they're isolating. They don't, they don't want to explain to their friends, you know, they can see a little, their friends see them functioning in their home just fine. And they don't understand why, you know, when they see them at the grocery store and they wave at them from across the, uh, you know, across the store or across the parking lot, they don't understand why they don't wave back because they haven't told them that they can't see them, you know? Yeah. And, and so it just, it, it really, it's a, it's a domino effect where people's, 
the people's lives kind of implode. Um, and when you think about people who don't have uh, supportive family, sometimes family doesn't understand any better than, than social acquaintances do. Um, and, and sometimes they don't have family at all to help them or a community of support around them. And uh, those are, they think, the saddest situations uh, that, that I encounter. And, and sadly enough, I encounter them way too often that people are, you know, very isolated, uh, you know, nobody to help them. It's a societal attitude change that, yeah. that needs to happen, Emily. And um, I think Karen Wolf said it best at a American Council of the Blind um, conference uh, she spoke at where she said people who are blind or visually impaired have to get out in the community yeah. and show people what they can do by living their lives. Mm-hmm. And and I don't, I don't know, it's been, you know, a hundred years and Helen Keller was out there, you know, um, traveling the world. Yeah. to advocate for the rights of people with vision and hearing loss and disabilities in general. And, you know, everybody thought she was amazing, but still uh, the, the number one fear uh, in America, and AFB did a study uh, about this earlier, uh, well, it was, it was about a decade ago, but um, compared to uh, cancer, AIDS, and losing a limb people are more afraid of blindness than all of that. Wow. And I'm like, really? You'd rather die than be blind? And yes, many people, that's their attitude about blindness. And that's an attitude that leaks over into, well, if I can't imagine functioning as a blind person, how can I hire somebody who's blind who Mm -hmm. says they can function? I can't imagine they can do this. So I'm I'm not going to consider them. That's an attitudinal change that we just, we have to, we have to change somehow. And I, I wish I had the answer. So given what you were saying about public perception challenges, um, mm-hmm. which is a big one, what do you think is crucial for young adults who are blind to know about getting a job or finding a career? Um, first of all, you have to get out there. You have to, you have to get out of your house, out of your room, um, away from your gadget <laughs> and relate to people. And, um, you, you know, you certainly start that with, you know, social activities when you're, when you're young and, and clubs and sports and whatever you can do, um, activities and, and getting to know people and getting to comfortable with, with talking to other people and introducing yourself, talking about your vision loss. Um, if, if you are a person who does not need to use a long white cane or a dog guide, um, you still have to tell people about your vision loss. And if you don't learn to do that um, when when you're younger, it will come back to haunt you when you're older because you have to be able to convince someone that you want them to give you a chance to do something like even be a volunteer, but especially to have a job that you have uh, a, a, a different way of doing things that compensates for your ability not to see 2020. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what that limitation is, whether it's a field limitation, acuity limitation, 
uh, a hearing limitation doesn't matter you you have to you have to be able to talk about it and talk about it in a way that other people understand and not only um, you tell them how you do things, but as much as possible, you show them. You take things with you. Uh, you know, you you have a video of you. Uh, I don't know, working on a soup line at a at a a homeless shelter, or um, you know, uh, sorting clothes for the for the uh, uh, the kids' uh, coat drive at church, or you know, doing something at a club at school, or whatever you do. Yeah. Um, you have to be able to talk about that. You have to be able to show people. And and that's kind of my mantra. I really want a T-shirt that says, I can do stuff. <laughs> it's sad you know? that you and, need a T-shirt for that, but I... Well, it I, is sad, but people who see you and don't know yeah. you, if you have a, if yeah. you have a, an obvious disability and or you tell them that you have a hidden disability like you know low vision that doesn't require a mobility aid then you're still going to have to convince them that you can do stuff yeah. and and you're not going to be able to take no for an answer okay right. um a lot of times you know i'm i'm very active in my church and and uh in my community and i'll go to an event to to uh you know, to help out, and they'll be, oh, no, Neva, just have a seat. Nope, there's bound to be something I can do. And and they're like, no, 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 just have a seat, you know. Uh, uh, no, what are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm putting these packets together. Okay, let me help. I'm going to sit here. <laughs> what are you doing? You yeah. know, tell me and, and let me help. And then they're like, oh, thanks so much, you know, and it's kind of like they feel guilty mm-hmm. asking me or allowing me to do something, you know, yeah. and that's part of that public perception. Oh, that poor blind lady. How can we ask her for help? You know, poor yeah. lady. Oh, no, poor lady. That's a bunch of bull. <laughs> I, I, I got skills. <laughs> you know, you, um, so you, I'm, I know we had talked a little bit when we got on the phone about how, um, this coronavirus pandemic is affecting your life and uh, you had already worked from home. And so that's Mm -hmm. not new for you. Um, But what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for people that are trying to work these days that are blind, that are suddenly thrown back in home? Have you, have you heard from anybody about that? What, what they're facing? Well, I'll tell you, it makes me sad, Emily, because I, I do hear from people. I, I'm a, I'm a game show host in the evening. (laughs) Oh, on a uh, uh, talking community, no, not talking communities, Team Talk channel. Oh. And it's mostly blind or low vision people who get together on an internet site and we play all sorts of games, trivia games, dice games. It's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's really sad. Most of the people um, that, I play, that I play games with are not working people, um, despite that, you know, the fact that you know, they could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are in training and want to work, but just haven't gotten there. But I really, um, I'm sad to hear them fuss about the fact that, um, like, for health care, they're not allowed to take their helpers with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, they're, they're really mad about it. Hmm. And I'm like, why, do you, why should you need a helper to take you know, you and your child to the doctor, Mm. you know, and, and why should, why, 
why should they make an exception for you because you're blind to bring someone into the hospital or to the doctor's office that, number one, exposes those people to more possibilities of contracting the virus, as well as your loved one, who's your helper, is now being exposed mm. to people who are exposed to a lot of sick people. Yeah. I, 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 it frustrates me because people take that second... It's kind of like second-class citizen status. I need a helper always, and mm-hmm. I, that that really kind of drives me nuts, Emily. You know, um, I think that what what this speaks to for me is that we all are sort of settled into the ways that we like to do things, and um, every one of us mm-hmm. is having to think creatively about how we work, how we engage as a family, and so we all have to think outside the box. What's another way that we can get what we need? Um, and and maybe the the flip side of this is that those people that had used a lot of assistance before may be creatively thinking about a new way to do things and be become more independent because they're sort of forced into this new space. I hope so. I really hope so. Hmm. Um, it, when, when we had the Center on Vision Loss, a lot of times it would be an older couple that would come in for information and to take a tour, you know. And um, whether it was the, the husband or the wife that had the visual impairment, um, many times the other spouse would be like, oh, you don't need that. I don't mind doing that for you. Yeah. Oh, you don't need that. I, I can, I, I don't, I can, I can help you, you know, with your medicine or I can help you with your taking your temperature or I can help you sort your socks or any of those things, you mm-hmm. know? And, and finally, about the third time I hear that out of the other spouse, I'd have to turn to them and say, so what happens when you're not there to help? What happens if one of your adult children has to have surgery and you need to travel across the country, you know, to, to help care for them and, you know, uh, your, your spouse is left at home to, you know, function on their own. Mm -hmm. What happens then? What happens if you get sick and you're in the hospital and they've got to care for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's happened to me. Uh, my husband was in the hospital for five months. And I was his primary caretaker, both when he was in the hospital, um, because the doctors and the nurses can't do everything in the hospital for, you know, for a loved one. Yeah. And, and, and especially when he was at home. Mm-hmm. And I had to be prepared to do that. This was really fun. I hope it was a, a good use of your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Fun to talk about stuff. I'm, you know me, Emily. Nobody, nobody ever <laughs> accused me of having nothing to say. <laughs> While we are all working under these unusual and stressful circumstances, you may find you need more online resources. TSBVI is here to help. Visit library.tsbvi.edu to access our extensive collection of past webinars and training videos created by our staff. And join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time for our Coffee Hour with TSBVI. Learn about and discuss a variety of topics with TSBVI outreach team members and other professionals from around the country and globe. For more information, visit tsbvi.edu slash coffee hour. As we carry on in what now feels like an episode of Black Mirror, Most of us are working remotely and navigating what that means. 
Neva's position at AFB has had her working from home for a while now, and she's been real successful. So if you're still struggling with the logistics and maybe finding your way in this, I recommend reaching out to people like Neva who really have telework all sorted out. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbdi.edu.